to another episode of the Rage Podcast. My name is Cars Fox and I'm your host for this season. This episode marks the start of our third theme of season five, which is on environmental justice. I'm joined today with guest Miguel de la Torre, and we are going to be deep diving into his recent book, Gonna Trouble the Water, Eco-Justice, Water, and Environmental Racism. The focus of Dr. Miguel de la Torre's academic pursuit is social ethics within contemporary U.S. thought, specifically how religion affects race, class, and gender oppression. Since obtaining his doctoral degree in 1999, he has authored over 100 articles and published 41 books, six of which won national awards. He presently serves as professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Eilig School of Theology in Denver. A Fulbright scholar, he has taught in Indonesia, Mexico, South Africa, Costa Rica, Cuba, and Germany. Within his guild, he served as the 2012 president of the Society of Christian Ethics. He is the recipient of the 2020 AAR Excellence in Teaching Award and the 2021 Martin E. Marty Public Understanding of Religion Award. Within the Academy, he served as a past director to the American Academy of Religion and served on the editorial board of JAAR. Additionally, he is the co-founder and executive director of the Society of Race, Ethnicity, and Religion and the founding editor of the Journal of Race, Ethnicity, and Religion. A scholar activist, Dr. De La Torre has written numerous articles in popular media and has served on several civic organizations. Recently, he has wrote the screenplay to a documentary on immigration, Trails of Hope and Terror, the movie, which has screened in over 18 film festivals, winning over seven awards. To begin this episode, I would like to highlight the promotional video for the book, Gonna Trouble the Water. I think it really sets the space for our conversation today, and so I'll go ahead and play that, and then we'll dive into my conversation with Dr. De La Torre. Water? Hoarded, stolen, exploited, poisoned, weaponized. Water is life, but when water is treated as a commodity, its life is imprisoned. And when water is in prison, its life can no longer be a force for liberation. To control water, is to control life. To poison water is to poison life. To value water as sacred, we must also value as sacred the lives of everyone who depends on water. Gonna Trouble the Water centers non-Eurocentric voices to reflect upon the intersection of water and racism. Well, to begin, I would like to ask you if you would be able to define some of the terms that we're going to be working with today, like environmental justice, environmental racism, and then water justice. Mm-hmm. Well, when you say define them, I think I need to clarify, this is how I'm defining them, which may be different than, than how everyone else um, defines them, especially within the dominant culture. So when you say environmental justice, 
most believe that this is um, how do we keep the environment in such a state that it is just for all the inhabitants of, of the planet. But I want to expand that definition of justice to include the earth itself. So it's not just justice for individuals, you know, specifically humans, but justice for animals, justice for plants, justice for rocks and, and mountains, justice for the earth itself. So environmental justice needs to be expanded to go beyond simply um, a human endeavor of, of, of somehow the human is the only one that deserves any type of just, justice. Um, the other term that, that you asked about was um, environmental racism. This is just a little, um, a little different because it focuses on how we operate as a society now. In other words, if you look at the most polluted sites in the world, if you look at where people of color mostly live, those two areas are the same. So to be Black, to be Latino, to be Indigenous is to live with greater amounts of pollution, whether it be air pollution, water quality, um, you know, close to industries that, that, that destroy the environment. Um, that's where people of color usually live. Um, and many studies have shown that when you look at communities of color, they are closer to waste areas than white communities. So environmental justice um, considers, um, how, you know, how do we create justice for the environment? Again, keeping that definition broader, um, but also recognizing that if you're a person of color, there is greater environmental um, stress placed upon you and your community. So I want to dive into more into both of those topics, but I want to just start with the difference between Western views about water or the earth in general, and then more indigenous perspectives. Your introduction for your book had really highlighted that there's a whole difference in how we approach caring for the earth or not caring for it if we have Western more beliefs of commodification and abuse. So I kind of wanted to just dive into a little bit about that to learn the contrast between Western commodification of water and indigenous respect and sacred relationship with water. The Eurocentric way of understanding land, um, understanding nature, is that it can be commodified. When Europeans first came to the Western Hemisphere, what made Indians uncivilized, quote unquote, is that they did not have the concept of land ownership. So for the European mind to be civilized, to be of a higher culture meant that property could be commodified and owned. Once you own something, you have the rights to use it and to abuse it, to sell it and to profit off of it. Um, and I say this about land, but also what makes land valuable is the water that is upon that land. So whoever controls the water not only controls life, 
for all creatures require water to live, but also makes that land upon which the water was located valuable. So in the Western mindset, the idea was, if I could control the waterway, then my land will be valued at more money and I could profit off of it. Now, many indigenous cultures, and when I say many, I'm talking about those in Africa, those in indigenous um, uh, Western hemisphere, those in Asia, see water specifically as having its own spirit, as actually having its own entity and identity. The Yoruba people, for example, understands the river as the goddess Ochun, which is also the goddess of love. So to pollute the river is to pollute Ochun, is to defile the goddess. Um, the same type of concepts occur um, in indigenous cultures here in this hemisphere, as well as in Asia. So if indeed, let's stay with Ochun and the river for a moment, if indeed the river is an entity known as Ochun, how can you own a goddess? How can you own a spiritual entity? You can't. Therefore, unlike the commodification of water in, the, in, in, in your centric philosophical thought, if water is its own entity, then it means it has its own rights. That water itself has rights to its own existence. And we as human can't just come and take it or own it or pollute it at our, you know, because, because we think we have a right to do so. So I think that's a major difference in where Eurocentric understandings of property and understanding of owning property um, has been detrimental to the earth. In the book, I begin my section, my chapter, by recognizing mm -hmm. that my current salary is from an institution that was founded on the abuse of water. In other words, when Ilif, the, the gentleman at the school, came west during the gold rush, rather than seeking and looking for gold and minerals in the Rocky Mountains, he instead uh, provided cattle and, and provided equipment and had a general store in Denver. Um, after a while, he, be, he was the first to um, use the water in Colorado, in many sections of Colorado, for the purpose of grazing cattle. And he, matter of fact, I think he became known as a cattle king. Because he was the first to use water for that purpose, um, according to the law at the time, he became the owner of water. So anyone who is passing through with cattle had to pay him for the cattle to be able to drink water. So here was indigenous land owned by the Arapaho and, and by the Cheyenne, who now, and the Ute, who now 
um, no longer own the land, no, or they never owned it to begin with, but they can no longer use the land of which they've always been upon because now Iliff owned these water rights. And because he owned these water rights, anyone passing through had to pay him for the right to use that water, making him extremely wealthy and hence being able to found the school that I happened to be teaching in. When you were talking, the first thing that kind of came to mind was how many colonial roots do you and the Iliff School of Theology has? Where if you go into the history of both of founders of both institutions, it's rooted in colonization and rooted in abuse of indigenous land or abuse to indigenous bodies. And so I didn't know prior to reading your book that about the history of John Iliff is his name. Yes. Correct? Okay. I didn't know about the history of that before. So it like kind of just reaffirmed for me, like the importance of decolonizing these spaces and how they're founded quite literally on colonization, on abuse to the earth, abuse to indigenous bodies. Absolutely. And I think the sad thing that this nation is going through right now is the uh, demonization of critical race theory that becomes a methodology by which to uncover these histories. So if indeed critical race theory is banned from our educational system, how then can we really study a history? Instead, these figures who settled the land that belonged to other people and profited off of that land will be lost to us and instead they will be made into saints and heroes. And, and humanity is more complex than just sinners and saints. Um, and, and I think critical race theory help us understand how to read our history so we know how racism, how colonialism um, plays a role in the development of this country. So yeah, it's, it's interesting the way uh, this nation is moving to silence the kind of work that, that rigorous scholarship demands. I want to dive right into that. It reminded me of how in your book and within environmental justice, you all state multiple times, and I watched a couple of videos and, and lectures of y'all's, and it was the erasure from Black, Indigenous, and other people of color from even the study of environmental justice and how there wasn't those lenses. And so your book, in many ways, was this new thing that actually centered marginalized voices and marginalized experiences in a way that hadn't been in any of the other studies and any of the other research done. So when you're talking about critical race theory and the erasure that's happening there, I thought about how even your book is kind of combating the erasure that happens within environmental justice in general. There is this false narrative mm -hmm. that people of color don't care about the environment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and part of it is because of white supremacy defining people of color as dirty to begin with. So if people of color are dirty by definition, that means that they are okay in living in squatter and in dirty environments. Um, and obviously that's, that's not true, that's false. 
But if we develop that lens, then people of color are ignored in the conversation dealing with environmental justice. And when those voices are missing, environmental justice becomes clean air and clean water. And don't get me wrong, that's important. I'm all in favor of that. But what environmental justice, white environmental justice ignores is who is mostly negatively affected by polluted air and polluted water. So what I try to do in this book, and in the book that I, I have a second book coming out now, um, which is gonna be called um, Shifting Climate, Shifting uh, uh, People, the, connect, the intersection of environmental injustices and immigration, people having to be forced to move because of the destruction of, 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 of their lands. Um, what's missing from white environmental justice are the voices of those who are mostly impacted by the degradation of the environment. That reminded me also of this idea that had gotten kind of reaffirmed multiple times throughout the book, but that when the same logic used to abuse the earth is the logic that is used to abuse marginalized people. Would you be able to kind of expand a bit more on that connection and the impact of that? Absolutely. Um, liberation theologian uh, Leonardo Boff uh, about almost 40 years ago wrote a book called The Cry of the Earth and the Cry of the People. And as a liberation theologian, he was always in, um, interested in the plight of oppressed people, in his case, in Brazil, the, the poor of Brazil. Um, and he began to make the connection that the same structures which oppress the poor are the same uh, structures that oppresses the earth. And the cry of the poor is the same cry that we hear the earth make. So you can't not separate um, the oppression of the least among us from the oppression of the earth. So throughout the book, one of the things that I, I try to maintain at the forefront is that if I truly am interested in the process of liberating the oppressed, I have to also therefore be interested in liberating the earth itself. I want to shift gears a little bit, but also turn into understanding how environmental racism has exacerbated the COVID crisis, the COVID pandemic. So, so, so let's look at Denver, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay, you have the Latino community up in the north. And while I don't recall the numbers right now, they have a, a very high rate of individuals being um, uh, contracting COVID-19. What we know from the science is that one of the contributors that would increase people's chances of getting COVID is air quality. If the air quality is poor, there's a greater likelihood of getting COVID. So when you compare the Latino neighborhood in North Denver with let's say Cherry Creek, which is about seven to nine miles away from the Latino neighborhood, the Cherry Creek residents, which are predominantly white, have lower 
COVID-19. And, and studies are, are, are showing that one of the reasons why you have this discrepancy is because of the air pollution um, in the Latino neighborhood, mostly caused by the highway that was built right in the middle of the neighborhood, um, increasing the carbon monoxide. So the air quality that people of color are forced to endure has um, exacerbated um, uh, the, the, this COVID-19 virus and where they become more susceptible to it. So that's a very local Denver example of how environmental racism um, works in the intersection with this current COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, we're not even talking about that as the earth continues to warm, as climate change continues to impact the planet, we're going to see a more and more global pandemics as animals, um, you know, and, 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 and birds and, and migration patterns changes and brings them closer together to each other to create new viruses. Um, and, and as the winter months shorten, we have longer, warmer days for these viruses to, you know, to develop and to mutate and to impact um, humanity. So, you know, so there's an example of local environmental races here in Denver and global based on climate change as well. In a video of yours that I watched, you talk about making the distinction that it's not climate change and something, but climate changed, is that we're already seeing the effects of it. And so for people who are, I know very many different people who relate to climate change very differently. And there was a specifically one quote from the book that I pulled out, but you talk about how in Bangladesh, there's a stench from the polluted canal that rises up and that it's affecting the people living by there, but these are the same factories that produce cheap clothes for Walmart, JCPenney, and H&M. So in my head, it's like, in some ways, is it also when you're buying from these companies that you're also in some way perpetuating this environmental racism, perpetuate, perpetuating these health crises? So what is the role of the individual and the, just the broader community and really combating not only climate change, but also environmental racism. Yeah. And, and I think, I, I think you, you're raising an extremely important point, and that is how complicit all of us are with what's going on in the climate, you know, as the climate has changed, including individuals like myself who are fighting against this climate change. Um, you know, I sometimes have no idea, for example, the shirt I'm wearing now, I don't know where it came from. I, I haven't looked at the label, but we know that in Bangladesh, the factories that make our clothing dump their dye into the rivers. In fact, you kind of know what the future fashion is going to be by the color of the river. And that is negatively impacting the children whose schools are built next to these rivers as they get ill, as they um, you know, get cancer, as they die early. So our privilege of living in a first world nation that could afford cheap clothes 
is directly linked to these children in Bangladesh who are dying early so that we can buy these cheap clothes. And this is, I think, the, the, the underside of neoliberalism. There's this global economic structure that masks and hides the, the impact of our buying power here in the United States. And I wish I could say, well, here's a simple solution. We should do this, this, and that. But there is no simple solution. Um, because we, you know, even, even some, some of these department stores who say these clothes were made under humane condition. And, you know, a lot of what we find out is that's not true. You know, we're just taking their word for it. So I think this idea of complicity, this idea of how um, our privilege is linked to the sufferings of others in other parts of the world um, requires a raising of consciousness um, so that hopefully we might be able to begin to try to pass legislations that prohibit the import of clothes mm -hmm. that do this type of damage. There's a bill, um, I, I think, I'm not sure, if, I don't think it passed yet, or maybe it did pass, that uh, not to allow the import of um, items made in, in China that was made with slave labor. Um, and while obviously there's more going on politically with that, but that kind of thinking of prohibiting the import of clothes that are damaging to the economy and more, I mean, to the environment and to the people who live in those areas might be a step forward in forcing these companies to be more um, cognizant of, 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 of how they are actually producing the clothes where we wear. And you don't have to go to Bangladesh, you just have to go south of, of the, to, to Mexico, that's south to our border because of NAFTA. Uh, we get to build our factories south of the U.S. border and not be concerned with uh, regu you know, government regulations that protect the environment or protect the workers. I was reflecting on something that you had said um, earlier in a different video that I had watched, but about how hyper-individualism in many ways contributes to when people are willingly ignoring an issue. It's this idea, if it's not bothering me, then I'm not going to care about it. So if I'm not doing this, if it's not, if my lungs aren't the ones that are getting poisoned, then I do not care type thing. And I think about this a lot in terms of like environmental justice, because I think that happens a lot, especially in America, because we have this idea of, oh, I'm not being harmed, so I'm not going to do it. And I think that leads to the erasure and the harm of BIPOC communities who are still living in these places that are very highly polluted. Another thing that I just want to highlight from what you said is also like the health impacts of this is that there's people who get cancer from living in these spaces. There's people who get asthma. There's people who die. And I think that sometimes the real health toll and the real just health cost and the life cost that happens when we just ignore just injustice in general, but ignore like the um, immense health impacts of environments that we might not be creating, but in some ways we're perpetuating. I think one of the most destructive 
philosophical uh, foundations of European thought is this hyper individuality. Uh, and where we see it, you know, even during this pandemic where people are saying, I have a right not to wear a mask. And it doesn't matter that other people might be infected by me not wearing a mask. My right of not wearing a mask supersedes your right of not dying. And, and, and it's this hyper individuality that allows me to live in a neighborhood that has clean air and clean water. And, you know, I made it and, you know, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, even though I didn't have any boots and the hell with everybody else who didn't. And we see not just this uh, in, um, among white communities, but also middle-class people of color who make it into those white communities um, quickly adopt this hyper-individuality and forget that many communities of color, whether it be indigenous, African, or Latin American, or Asian, are not um, you know, culturally hyper-individualistic, but they're very communal. These have been communal societies in where my well-being depends on your well-being. And I think one of the reasons this pandemic has been such a crisis is because I could say I got my two shots and my booster, so the hell with everybody else. But then what happens is you have a new variant um, developing in South Africa because I'm too self-centered, America first, to provide vaccines in South Africa. So now, yes, I may be healthy, but I'm still stuck in my house because of this new uh, mutation of the virus which occurs because of this hyper-individuality of America first and the rest of the world could just go to hell as if the virus does not cross borders or the virus does not care if my neighborhood is middle-class, upper-class or, or poor. It, it will infect us all. You know, usually after pandemics, after global disasters, communities do change. And maybe what we may learn from this uh, pandemic is that we need to move away from this hyper-individuality and embrace the indigenous communalness of, uh, of, of BIPOC people that have always been there. It's no, longer, it's no longer enough that I have good medical insurance. If you don't have good medical insurance, you may get the virus and if you cannot take a sick day because your company doesn't prevent you, uh, doesn't allow you to have a sick day, you have to go to work while you were sick. And if you're, you know, if you're in the food service, you infect me <laughs> by cooking my food while you're sick because there's laws that doesn't allow you to take a sick day when you need it. So, so we have to really rethink what it means to live in community and not what it means to live as, you know, it's me and against the world by myself. I think that goes back to what we were talking about or what you had shared at the very beginning of the episode and kind of how indigenous perspectives look at everything as having value, look at everything as being worthy of being protected and safe and cherished. And it just reaffirms kind of that communal aspect that if you're hurt, then I'm hurt. Or like your injustice is my injustice. 
instead of that hyper individualization of being like, I don't care if it's happening to you because it's not happening to me, but getting to a place where we genuinely actually care for each other and work to see each other well and thriving. One thing that I learned from the indigenous communities of, of this continent is that you make decisions eight generations into the future. That what I decide today, how would it impact eight generations from now? Eurocentric thought, which has been commodified, is what I decide today, how would it impact the quarter earnings of this year? So we only make decisions. Corporate America makes decisions for just four months. <laughs> you know, what do I do now that can make me a profit four months from now? Before the, you know, by the end of the quarter, you know, after we put the quarter earnings. You know, that's that's a recipe for disaster. Because I'm only looking at making a profit in the immediate future not realizing that I sometimes have to invest and go without so as to create a better future for my great, great, great grandchildren who I will probably never see. I had written that down and underlined it when you had just said about making decisions eight years into the future. I love that. I love that framing. And I think that that's a great you know, recipe or, or great just way to live in general. Is there anything else from this interview that you would just really like to share with the audience or anything that we left out that you want to elaborate on? I would say that probably, and I think you said it earlier, we're no longer in a situation where we're talking, how do we prevent the climate from changing? The climate has changed we are going to live with more hurricanes, more tornadoes, more fires in the West, um, with greater um, disasters. The, the issue now is how do we manage the changes that have already occurred? And it, could, it will only get worse. So how do we begin now to manage the changes that have occurred, but how to slow it down. So at least to give the next several generations a chance to live. And, 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 and what is truly devastating is this last Sunday, uh, the West uh, Virginia Senator killing um, the uh, build, back, uh, build Back Better bill that was supposed to spend something like, I think, $555 billion to create climate, you know, to, to, to make us, uh, you know, to move uh, climate justice forward. And, and the only reason that bill was killed is because he comes from a coal-producing state. And the, and, the, and, the leg and the proposed legislation was looking at new alternatives by which to produce energy. So the, again, the self-interest of the one is condemning the entire planet. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rage Podcast. To stay up to date on Rage episode release information and opportunities, be sure to follow our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Rage Podcast. All one word. To support the Rage Podcast, please be sure to subscribe or follow like, and share on the platform that you are listening to us on. The Rage Podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about the work that we do, please visit our website, irise.du.edu. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we will catch you next time.